0: Hello, and welcome back to the Prospect podcast, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Alastair Campbell, journalist, author, co-host of the Rest is Politics podcast, our so-called rival, and former Downing Street director of communications to discuss his new book, which is called But What Can I Do? which asks why politics has gone so wrong and what can we do about it. Welcome, Alastair. Thank you. Why has politics gone so wrong? I think populism is a big part of it. Uh, I'm going to interrupt you straight away because I'm really interested in how you define the word populism. I define populism as the separation of
1: the population of any country or any demographic into an elite and the so-called pure people. And the populist politician despite most of them being elitists, be that Trump, Johnson, Farage, Rees-Mogg, whoever, exploit that separation by seeking and purporting to represent the people against the elite. And then populism is fed by something called polarisation, the second P, which seeks to divide and then seeks to create and exploit problems as opposed to address problems. And then the third P, which I think is a, long, a big part of where we've gone wrong, is post-truth. Now, there's always been robust debate in politics, but I think on both sides of the Atlantic now, we have the normalisation of the acceptance of lying in politics, which has just been a massive change. And I think here in America it was mainly Trump, here it was mainly Brexit and Johnson. And what it's led to is, well, a government, if you think that we've now had 13 years of a Conservative government, I can't think of a single thing that's improved in this country as a result of them being in power. Literally not a single thing. Gay marriage under Cameron, you could, I guess you could say, but everything feels like it's gone backwards, and yet here they are asking for another five years, which will take them to 19 years. And at the same time, people are not, I think Labour is well ahead in the polls. Hopefully we'll win the next election, but it's not a done deal. And I think the reason for that is a lot of people are just turning away from it. And the reason I've written the book, but what can I do, is because that's what people keep saying to me as I go around the place. They say, <laughs> I hear you on the telly, I hear you on the radio, I read what you write and here, there and everywhere, I follow you on your podcast, I agree with what you're saying, but I feel, you know, what can we do? What can I do? And I'm trying to explain to people we can make change, but we've got to understand how bad things are before we
0: can begin to change them. So we'll come on to the, the change bit in a minute. But just, just to go back to populism, because I guess there was a time in your life, maybe when you were writing for a very popular paper. Daily Mirror. Daily, Daily Mirror. When, if I'd been asked to think about you, I would have thought you were on the, you were against the elites and you were on the side of the people, and yeah. that was a sort of different kind of anti-elitism. anti Have you changed or have other things changed? But what I would say is I was a
1: tabloid journalist working for a newspaper that supported the Labour Party, saw itself as being the people's paper, wanted to give the working class in Britain a voice. And I think that's very different. So we were, as it were, a part of the debate ecosystem, I think that's very different to being a politician who is standing for office, standing to run the country and gets there through a very long track record of being a liar and being a populist, by which I don't mean somebody who wants to become popular, but by somebody who seeks to say that problem over there either isn't really a problem or it's a problem, I'm going to exploit it. Or it's a problem, by the way, if you vote for me, I'm going to solve that problem for you. You don't need to worry about it. So I think that they're two very different things. And the other thing I'd say is that look, I was a journalist and yes, I was always looking for stories that damaged the Thatcher government and helped Neil Kinnock and all that. So I was a biased journalist, I accept that. But I didn't make stories up. And I think we now have part of populism and part of post-truth is we now have newspapers that i don't even know how to describe it one of the reasons this government continues to get away with murder is because the papers with some exceptions let them don't cover stuff that's really important don't really stick with scandals just imagine if the michelle Mohn story of the vast sums of public money given to somebody who clearly didn't Know how to deliver the PPE that for which she was being paid. Imagine if that had happened under a Labour government. Imagine if thirty-seven billion on test track and trace. Imagine if that had happened under a Labour government. We imagine just a tiny one, a trivial one. Last week, Liz Truss, the r- missing bathrobes from Cheverly, this grace and favour residence. Imagine if that had been Cherie. We'd still be talking about it. So, I think that. Look, I'm not pretending that I was a you know, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, but I think we did have standards that seemed to me to be eroded.
0: Just unpack the word elites to me, because, again, if we go back to that period, well, I'd like you to say who you thought the elites were, because there's obviously this Matthew Goodwin book, which has been much promoted re- recently, which defines the elites in a completely different way. I mean, you, you and I would be part of the elite class that he's that he thinks is now running. <laughs> yeah, I wish, uh, wish you were. pulses for a chuckle. Um, but but who were the elites then, and who do you think of as the elites now? Well, some of them are the same. I would put
1: the royal family as part of the elite. The House of people who are in the House of Lords by dint of birth are part of the elite. The you know people of vast wealth are in the elite. I think that the media figures that I talk about have become more of a part of the elite because of the fact that Johnson was a journalist, Michael Gove was a journalist, the media owners like Murdoch and editors like Dacre, they're part of the elite. I guess that back then it may be meant more, you thought talk, talk about perhaps the judiciary would be part of the elite. I guess that was more the establishment. And I think there's nonsense, honestly, there's nonsense about... I read some utter garbage about, apparently, me, Gary Lineker, Emily Maitlis, a couple of other people, Carol Vorderman, we were running the country. I mean, it's just... What these, what these people on the so-called intellectual right have got, they don't really have a... What I would call a, a real a serious political agenda, and if you 're a supporter of this government, they haven 't really got a record they can defend they haven 't really got a plan for the future, so they create all this absolute bollocks that becomes the thing that they talk about so woke i 've got a passage in the book about woke you know if you 're a lefty lawyer you 're woke if you're a fo- if you're a Marcus Rashford and you campaign that for kids to get food in schools, that's woke. If you, if you kneel down, if you take the knee at a you're woke. If you clap it, you're woke. It's just utter nonsense. And it's because they haven't really got a kind of philosophical political agenda on the go. That's what they're left with.
0: Why, despite all that, and there's lots of that I imagine our listeners wouldn't disagree with, why do you think Boris Johnson was so popular and Remains in some quarters so popular. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an unlikely story, that that there's somebody so personally flawed, from the most I mean, genuinely, genuinely elite background, and gets elected overwhelmingly. He's storming success.
1: Well, you can't say it was a storming success other than in getting elected. Eighty seats. Yeah, other than getting yeah. elected, I mean, he was an utter failure as prime minister. Um, lots of reasons. He does have. Funny enough, do you know him? I do know him. I I, I don't know him well. Mm. Um, I mean, he used to come to my briefings, and in fact, I was when we were in Belfast with the Good Friday Agreement. I was remembering that for the recent celebratory events, I was remembering that he was one of the few long faces in the, the media tent at Belfast when I went out to brief that the deal had been done, because he'd spent a lot of ink telling his readers that it was all a terrible betrayal and all the rest of it. Michael Gove was another one. Look, he's got a positivity, he's got a charm, he's quite funny. I don't find the shtick at all funny, because I know it's an act. I think his big advantage was, I'm afraid, having Jeremy Corbyn as an opponent. That was a massive advantage. People were utterly fatigued by Brexit. He gave these, this is back to populism, get Brexit done put it in the oven, put it out of the oven, it's done. We've got a deal, it's ready to go, lying. Um, But enough people bought it. He's a con man. He's a con man, and con men can be successful if the circumstances are right. I don't accept that he's still popular. I I accept there are some people that will still say we like him because he's scruffy and he's different and he makes us laugh and all that. But I think more people are actually utterly revolted by him and actually think it's too hard eternal shame as a country that we elected him as prime minister. And that's what I hear all over the world, by the way. You you just, you know, talking to the other politicians from different parts of the world who are in Belfast for this recent event, they just think it's... I mean, when he turned up with Liz Truss at the dinner to thank all the people who contributed to the Good Friday agreement, I thought, you know, I don't know what levels of shame you have to reach to be able to put your head up at an event like that.
0: Well, you mentioned Liz Truss, and of course, whatever you think of Johnson, Liz Truss was even worse. So this, I mean, as we're beginning the conversation by saying, why has politics gone so wrong? How is it that a country ends up with Liz Truss as prime minister? I mean, that still baffles me. It must baffle many people. I think it
1: does baffle people, but it's because the Conservative Party elected her. And part of polarisation is that, as politics has gone to the extremes and as both the main parties really have failed to maintain themselves as mass membership parties, it means that they're being elected by ever fewer people of ever more extreme views, a lot of whom see politics really either as part of their social life or as a bit of a game. So I I think that look anybody who elected, anybody who voted for Liz Truss, to be prime minister, especially as these were people like you talked to MPs, I talked to MPs, people voted for her who I've heard saying the most terrible things about what sort of person she is, what she believes, what sort of you know, sort of levels of incompetence, and particularly to do it after Boris Johnson. That's the other thing is like you know they've had that one lesson, and I guess that. I mean, Sunak, I find it incredible the extent to which we're all being expected to sort of bow down, oh, this amazing guy, the grown-ups back in the room. He's only getting any credit at all. The country's still absolutely going in the wrong direction, completely stuck, nothing really works. He's only getting any credit at all because he's not a bigger liar as him and he's not as utterly useless as she, she was. He's still, you know, I think when Thatcher was prime minister, when John Major was prime minister, I think Sunak would have been a middle-ranking minister of state. So I think this is the other thing that – perhaps the other reason why I wanted to write the book is we've got to broaden the political gene pool. I did an event the other day of business people, quite bright people. They're mainly kind of insurance industry, pensions, things like that. And there was lots of kind of complaining about politics and are we just getting old when we think that the politicians aren't as good as they were, etc. cetera.
2: Introducing Wondersweep from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard.
1: You all seem quite bright. You're obviously politically engaged, otherwise you wouldn't have come and heard me on a, you know, Champions League night. Hands up, who's ever thought of going into politics? One hand went up. And then when I asked him what he'd thought of going, he'd thought of being a Conservative candidate. I said, why didn't you pursue it? He said, because I just thought that I'd lose my life. And I think a lot of people think that. I think they think politics is horrible. I try to explain in the book that it can be horrible. There are horrible parts to it, but it's an amazing it's an amazing place to be—the heart of politics. So I'm trying to say to people: I quote Julia Gillard, the Australian, former Australian Prime Minister, who says that if a young woman says to her, "I'm thinking about going to politics," what do you think? She says, "Do it." And I said, "And what about? Do you say it can be horrible? There is misogyny. Social media abuse is relentless, etc. You say all that, but you also say that ultimately, if you can actually lift a million kids out of poverty, if you can actually..." change the way that the school system is run and standards rise, that is better than anything. And that's what I think we've got to try to recapture in in the public imagination about what politics can do.
0: I'll come back to that in a second, but I just want to talk about the gene pool of people who are in politics or who are able to have a chance of getting into politics. You're probably aware that Michael Crick, the former... Channel 4 guy, is is keeping an eye on on all the people who are being selected for the Labour Party. And he's concluded that people like Angela Rayner, Robin Cook, Neil Kinnett would never get a seat nowadays. The left has been completely annihilated Uh, he's asked is this about class he says it's totally middle class it's not because they it's not because they're chosen on these grounds working class people in the old days were promoted by the unions a lot of people can't afford the whole process of spending weeks in a seat or months there in some cases the left has been utterly annihilated do you recognize that as a description of what the Labour Party is now doing in terms of its election and that must be a bit depressing counted to the tone of your book which is encouraging people to go in I've followed Michael's stuff, and and
1: obviously I know some of the candidates that have been accepted, I know some of the candidates that that have failed to get accepted. And I think it's a bit too simplified. I think there's definitely the case, definitely the case that Keir Starmer and the leadership of the Labour Party is trying to think about what a parliamentary Labour Party in government might look like, and is not surprisingly thinking, particularly as even to get a majority of one is such a big swing that you don't necessarily want 50 to 100 MPs who are kind of, you know, instinctively going to be offside most of the time. So I get that. I think there will be some working-class voices coming through, but I, I think that politic, that both of the main parties have... The point about time and money is incredibly important. So I write about my nephew in there, who is a, he's now the leader of a council, but he's been involved in Labour Party politics for as long as I can remember. And he makes the point that for young people trying to get into, say, an organisation like the Labour Party, because the 65 plus people have got more time on their hands, they give more time to the Labour Party. And it means that when a young person goes in and tries to do it differently, they're outnumbered. And you have people who basically say, well, we've never done it like that. Or are we, you're young, you go away and do all the social media, digital stuff, because we don't really understand that. What they're not really doing is saying our politics is moribund, the parties aren't connecting with the communities in the way that they used to. We need to find a way of using these young people properly. So I see it less as a class thing, as more of a kind of time and age thing that I think is maybe making that process more difficult. I still think that you mentioned Angela Rayner, Robin Cook, Neil Kinnock. I'd be very surprised if people of that level of obvious political strength and personality strength would fail to get into through selections. But all of them, by the way, had to try pretty hard. That's the, that is the amazing, the kind of paradox of what I'm saying in this book is the gene pool is very narrow, but you're still finding more people who want to be MPs. And you're still finding a lot of people who, you know, will make it and will become MPs. But at the same time, there's a kind of, I hate generalizing like this, but there's a bit of a kind of caricature developing about what an MP is in general. And I, you know, when when, when you read it in The Guardian and I was kind of covering politics for the mirror and stuff, I mean I used to love getting you know, the, you'd you'd hear the, the, the announcer going and it'd say Dennis Skinner or John Biffin, uh Charles Kennedy. There were there were all sorts of different people whose names would come up and you'd think, whatever the debate is, it's going to be worth hearing them. And I think now I sometimes get the blame for this, that politicians feel a bit too polished and a bit too packaged and what have you. And definitely that we've got to break out of that. We've got to have politicians who are just able to connect and for people to look at them and think, that's, you know, my voice is in there somewhere. And I think that, that too many of them, I think we're losing the educative piece of political leadership as well. You know, there's so much... I talk about some of the issues in the book that barely get covered in the political debate. You know, this whole AI thing at the moment. I don't know. You've, on the one hand, people are saying it's going to destroy humanity. On the other hand, the people are saying it's going to save health care around the world. I don't know what the truth is. I know I can watch all the experts, the people who are involved. in. I think, well, they've got a bit of a vested interest there. But you actually need – that's where you need politicians to give leadership. And I feel that at the moment we're kind of slightly
0: losing that part of politics. So you, you hold out Julia Gillard, take a million people out of poverty. So that's a very inspiring vision. But isn't the criticism of politics at the moment that whether you look at Sunak or whether you look at Starmer, actually no one's talking that big. No one. It's all pretty small scale because there's a sense that it's almost impossible to do anything in politics any longer. I
1: mean... Which is not true, though. It is possible to do stuff and stuff is done. I mean, I give loads of examples in the book of change that's been made, large and small, through single issue campaigners who get the law changed, who make change happen. So stuff can get done where I completely agree. You see, if you you look back at what we did, and I try not to do the rose-tinted spectacles because it was bloody hard and it wasn't always very much fun and all that. But... We, so, you know, the five pledges that we had in 1997, they're actually quite small, they're quite limiting. But what we had was this bigger message above it all, which was that we have to modernise the country, we have to modernise our politics, our institutions, our public services, the way that we had a big message. And then you can have these smaller things. But at the moment, I feel either, I, if I were to say to Rishi Sunak, what are you actually trying to do with the country? I ought to be able to know what the answer is. I, ought, I follow this stuff quite closely. I understand politics, I think. I ought to be able to explain to somebody who asked me that question what the answer is. I can't explain. It. I don't know what it is. Can you say it about Starmer? And I was going to say about Labour. I think I can say, I can say, I can see three planks to their strategy. Show that the Labour Party's changed post-Corbyn, and it's not what it was. And he's done that perfectly well. Show that the Tories are absolutely useless and he's done that well, show the compelling, clear, compelling alternative with that clear direction about where the country's going. That's the bit I think is not yet there. And that's got to be there. It's not enough. Look, the Tories are so bad. Hopefully, the country will just say they've got to go and they're out. But you can never, ever, ever take that for granted.
0: There's some people who look at Starmer and feel he's been trapped in a, what I would I'll use Blairite as a shorthand. a Blairite orthodoxy, that you only win elections from the centre and you've got to show that you can be trusted with the money. So he's being very fiscally prudent, he's not making any promises and it's all a bit dull, isn't it? I don't think it's a
1: Blairite orthodoxy, but I think it's... Uh, look, I think it's caution. I think there's a caution to it. And... There's, this, there's clearly this debate going. We talk about this on the podcast the whole time. You, you've got the Ming Vars people who think, you've, you know, we're, we're, we've got this Ming Vars, we're way ahead in the polls. People hate the Tories and let's just carry the Ming Vars and be very, very careful, let's not drop it. And then you've got other people, and I would be with them, that say it's never enough for the other side to be hopeless. You've got to give them clear, compelling reasons to, sh- to make the shift. Now, I think he's given... Some in terms of character, and I know he gets all this flip flopping and all that. I don't buy that. I, get, I completely get why he stayed in Corbyn's shadow cabinet, and even though he didn't necessarily ever think Jeremy was going to win, I think he is actually a serious person who's decent, understands people, really wants to do good for the country. I get all that. But I think it's this the bit I'd really like to see is the kind of where are we going to be in five years? Where are we going to be in 10 years? Where are we going to be in 20 years? That sense of where do we go as a country? And, of course, the big elephant in the room, I'm afraid, in this is the, the whole kind of post-Brexit, Brexit murder. Because the obvious thing to do, this is what Johnson tried to do with his global Britain, but as ever with Johnson, it was just a slogan. There was no substance to it. But what is Britain's role in the world post-Brexit? I don't know the answer to that because I don't hear the answer. I don't even hear a debate about it.
0: After the break, we'll talk more about how we can fix our national politics. If you enjoy our podcasts and would like to consume more of our journalism, we'd encourage you to subscribe. A subscription unlocks full access to Prospect content across newsletters, web, app and print. And right now, a subscription to Prospect costs as little as £1 a month. Visit all one word, .co UK and subscribe now. Wow. So you you're you know exactly how the British press works and what the media ecosystem is like in this country. Why is Brexit still undiscussable? And if you were advising Starmer now, how would you advise him to put this on the table and begin to discuss it?
1: Well, they discuss it. It's it's not undiscussable, and people are talking about it a lot. <laughs> Fiona and I were driving through across the channel the other day and the uh <laughs> we'd given our passports in at the at the the British side and the guy doing it recognized me and the, the there was a woman in the next booth and he said hey look who it is he said look at it is. do I to talk to her and I could tell it was basically she was a Brit and uh and she said, oh, do you know, it's the worst thing I've ever done in my life. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I did it. I see every day, I see the consequences. It's an absolute disaster. I get that. People are talking about it. Small businesses, farmers, fishermen, students, the French kids who are getting turned away because they've got the wrong identity card. I mean, it's just the whole thing is just wretched and awful. And I think, why isn't it not being discussed at the political level? The Conservatives, because they're perpetuating the myth that it's all going fine and they don't want to admit it's a catastrophe, and Labour because they don't want the next election to be about Brexit, for reasons I understand, because the country is sick to death of hearing about it. But if they're going to have this future, this future piece about what sort of country we're going to be, they're going to have to address the questions about how we rebuild our, and repair our relations with the rest of the European Union. So they don't even have to say we're going back in the European Union. I completely get that. But the stuff that has been broken has got to be fixed. So they have to start talking about that. But you know
0: they would be slaughtered by the press. For doing so that. so what? They're going to get slaughtered by the press well, anyway. Yeah. I mean. They're going to get slaughtered by the press because <laughs> that's what they do.
1: They'll find something. Sir Softy at the moment, that's the line they're trying mm, at the moment. Mm. They're going to get slaughtered by the press. The public. Also, I think the press are way less
0: important. That's what I was going to get. I mean, you, you say in the book, you think that the power of the, the mail and the other papers like that is waning.
1: Well, it's still there because you only have power if people give you power. So if you're, the, if you're the Prime Minister, you've been given that power, OK? If I say, if, if, we, if people keep saying the Daily Mail has an immense power in the country, it has that power because that's what people think. The, the actual influence that it has in the debate, I think, is that. It's not real in the, you know, I just cannot for the life of me understand why our broadcasters give so much space to the newspapers and to these journalists who go on and pretend that they're kind of independent commentators when they're actually just sort of paid shills, mainly on the right. So it's not that they're not significant, but far more important at the moment. I, was, I had a very alarming chat yesterday with a Labour candidate in the council elections. I said, oh, we're doing really well. You know, every, every really good response on the doorstep. And we get, we've done a lot of leaflets. And it's great because the word's coming about. The Tories aren't even leafleting. And I said, yeah, well, you know why? because they're putting all the money into the kind of social media dark art stuff. They're probably telling your voters that you're... things you're not. So that that whole campaign landscape is changing very quickly. And that, I think, is more worrying, in a way. And what they're using the press for, the press are being used to kind of... to lay the ground for the kind of negative stuff that's then going to come at you on your your laptop and your phone and all the rest of it.
0: In terms of... The second bit of the question So, why why has politics gone wrong and what can you do about it? Just give us a sort of taste of the kind of things that you would urge particularly young people to do.
1: I think the most important thing to do is for them to decide that they want to do something, to decide that they really do care about causes. So, you know, I don't say in this book, by the way, I think it would be really great if everybody thought about being a Labour MP. I'd love it. I, I, had, I have this sort of idle fantasy that somebody very young reads this book and on the day that I die, the then prime minister of the day says, this is the book that made me think about going to politics. I'd love it if that happened. But that's not what, it, what I really want is for people to think I've got to stop just moaning. I've got to stop saying, as people say all the time, you can't make a difference. I quote loads of people from the well-known like Greta Thunberg to the less well-known who like Gina Martin who single-handedly changed the law on that upskirting thing because of something that happened to her. Now, it's a, they're one off scenario. Anyway. where My daughter who got involved in that whole period poverty campaign. You know, you can make change. So it's basically saying decide what time you have, what energy you have, what commitment you have, and do it. And it's understanding that activism, the word is act. It's not tweet, it's act. And I think there's a real, look, I'm as bad as anybody is thinking, you know, tweeting away my anger and my passion and all that stuff. But ultimately, that is not how you make change. It can help, but you have to act. And so I do think if you, look, the other thing I try to say to people is like, you know, you mentioned Keir Starmer. And I know loads of people desperately want Labour to win. And they'll say, mm, yeah, but he's not Tony Blair. Mm, he's not Barack Obama. Well, no, he's not. But he's the leader of the Labour Party. And if you think the Labour Party is best placed to represent you and take this country in the right direction, join it. And if you think the same of the Tories, join that. But get involved. Get engaged. Young people in particular, why do politicians focus so much on older people? Because they vote. So young people who say, oh, it doesn't make me. What's the point of voting? They don't listen to us. Well, one of the reasons they don't listen to you is because you don't vote. So, if you want a voice, you have to decide to get heard. And then I think it's you know I, I try to advise people about how to look after themselves in politics, how to how to build develop a campaign, what is a strategy, how do you build a team, and try to persuade them as well that it can actually it can actually be really enjoyable doing it. But I think the the short answer to the question, when I was writing the book, I, I had a number of kind of images of people that I'm hoping would read it and go for it. So some of them I've already described, the people who are really angry and really upset and want wanted to change. And I just think, put the anger to one side and think, right, very calmly, what is the best thing I can do in my time? And there is so much out there that is good that's going on. There are great campaigns going on. There are people making change. There are people that know how to put pressure on politicians to get stuff done. Get involved with them. Get engaged with them. I also write about journalism, by the way, as a a way of of doing this. You know, I've got a lot of criticisms of the modern media, but, you know, we need good journalism more, more than we ever needed it. So that's a way of changing the world as well. But you have to decide... You have to decide the limits of your own time, energy, and how much you care. And then I think, you know, stand for things. If you want to be a student, I mean, I I never got involved in student politics, but I think that you talk to most student unions now,
0: they really struggle to fill all the sort of posts. Get involved, pick them. There will be some people who say it's a bit rich coming from you that that before the Iraq war, a million people did take to the streets and did protest. Yeah, I get that. And... No one listened. What do you say to that? Well, I understand why people did listen in
1: that, I mean, I can remember that day vividly, and I can remember having the dis- discussion about it. That was the point at which I, I remember saying to Tony Blair, as I look, Tony, imagine if this is the only thing you ever get remembered for. Is it really worth it? I, was, I wasn't I was necessarily giving my view. I was just testing his. And 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 he, I can, he I'll never forget this. He said, look, it's always worth doing what you think is the right thing to do. And I don't have to decide whether to go on a march. I don't have to decide whether to express a view an opinion poll. I've got to make the decision. And you, you weighed it all up. And I get... I do understand why people say, oh, God, there's the guy who was selling the case for war in Iraq, which turned out to be a oh, load of nonsense because they didn't find the weapons of mass destruction. I understand that. I can defend everything that I said and did at the
0: time, but I do understand why people say but, that. But can you think of an example, having been on the inside and seen protest on the outside, can you think of an example of successful protest where your government changed its mind as a result of the activism of people on the outside?
1: Well, it's probably one that you won't like very much, but I think we probably went soft on some of the, the countryside alliance. I think were a very powerful protesting force. No, I think protest does have an effect. I really do, and I, and I worry about the extent to which it's being curbed at the moment. I mean, this, this thing thing here—we're talking just ahead of the of the coronation. This and the Met Police putting a thing out today, say, you know, there will be there will be no tolerance of anybody who seeks to undermine the celebration or whatever it was. I just thought, oh, is that the world we're in now? But no, that I think you don't underestimate on the protest front. Yes, governments, particularly governments like with a big majority, can get things through. But don't imagine that if you are raising your voice, that it's not being weighed up within the debate. What I think often happens with people who protest against things. If things things don't end up as their protest is demanding, then they assume that they're not even heard. I think they are heard. I think they are heard. I think the fact that, you know, that that guy, we're just a stone's throw from Westminster, that guy, Steve Bray, who is there every day, anti-Brexit guy, calling out the Tories and what have you, he's had an effect on the debate. In what way? I just think he has. I think he's had an effect on the debate by getting under their skin. I think he's had an effect on the debate by being one of those people who is making clear, as I'm making clear with this book, We're not going away in terms of calling out the lies and the crimes that were committed on Brexit. We're not going away in terms of calling out the disaster that's been for the country. And that, over time, that can have an effect. The thing about, the thing about, the other thing I say about protest, you never really know when the change comes. You know, one of my favourite films ever, because of what it showed about the arc of campaigning, was the film about Harvey Milk, which I think was called as Milk. Gay rights campaigner. Yeah. So it starts with him being beaten up and it ends up with him being elected. Now, his life ended up with him being killed. Um, but the, the film, he he, che- he gets the law changed. He brings in the, the first kind of gay rights legislation in the United States. Now, bet- bet- in the arc of that film, you can't work out where the change comes. The change doesn't come with the passing of the legislation. It's, that's a response to the to the change. And so I'll give you another one that that might resonate with you because you and I were sort of in newspapers roughly the same time. I used so I used to sit in the Daily Mirror, chain smoking as a lot of other journalists did, and regularly tossing into the bin press releases from Ash, the campaign, the organisation that was trying to bring in legislation against tobacco. Okay. And all these stories about the power of the tobacco lobby and all the MPs they were buying and all this sort of stuff. And we just you know, smoke. carrying them. Now, look, at here we are. We're in a room. If we've been in this room 30 years ago, if you and I wanted to smoke, we'd have smoked. Now, where did that change come? You can say what it came when we did the legislation. But we did the legislation after decades of people fighting for change. So, I think you can point to lots of changes that ultimately, most big changes have always had protest at their heart. The,
0: the book, as far as I can see, is, advocates fairly mainstream campaigning.
1: Yeah.
0: Where, where are you on the kind of tactics being used by Extinction Rebellion or Stop, Just Stop Oil, where people are going much further? And. Um, are really, really being very controversial, and the, the tactics they're using—is is that justified? I think it can be.
1: I think it, it, I think part of um, campaigning, particularly at a time when the government is bringing legislation to make that kind of thing more difficult, I think it's going to probably provoke more of it. I don't know. But again, you go back to you go back to some of the great campaigns on women's rights, and you know we had that thing at the Grand National recently. Well, you know, one of the most famous protests of all time was you know the women's rights people the women's votes for women people jumping in front of horses so i think it has a place i think you've always got to be very very careful about it and and you're right to say that i i think i think for me to come along age 65 and say what we should be doing is gluing ourselves to to railings having in government very much frowned upon that kind of thing i think would 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 sound a bit odd but i i do think that and and the other thing i'd say about this is that the, the media debate on this is so important because the reason that people sometimes get driven to extremes and to do the stuff that really provokes people in protest is because the case that they're trying
0: to make never gets heard. Because of the media we have. Yeah. 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 Talk, talk, talking of media, I mean your, your podcast that you do with Rory Stewart has been a, a, a smash hit. Is it still number one? I would yeah. sincerely hope so. It was
1: the last time I checked an hour ago. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Is that a sort of? Uh, I, I, I mean, I've, I've heard you talking about the origins of it. It feels as though you sort of stumbled into it by accident, rather than came in with a sort of manifesto. But uh, has it worked out as a sort of example of anti-polarisation? That we've got two figures who, who were really, I don't know if you how well you knew him beforehand, but you came from very different backgrounds. Mm. And yet, one of the charms of the is seeing you what you agree on as as much as or disagreeing as, as well is is that how you see it developing as an,
1: as an yeah, example I think so what? i mean <laughs> interestingly it, so I started writing the book i think one of the impulses for writing the book I accept that i 'm a very combative, very tribal can Polar- be polarizing can be aggressive can be very polarizing i accept that, and I think in Confronting some of the arguments in the book i 've acknowledged that in the book that you know I, even today if I find myself if i 'm arguing with somebody about brexit, I can feel myself getting very emotional very quickly and I have to try and you know I can lose my temper and it 's not very sensible you don 't necessarily and I write in the, I write a chapter on the people' it's, it's slightly PTSD in this building because this is where we used to have the people 's vote meetings I, I didn't do you know that's so you, you're in this amazing building with so we used to come in here and and i make the point in the book that we it was an amazing campaign we almost pulled it off but one of the problems was that we were polarizing we did polarize i discovered too late to do anything about it that our social media team were putting filters to stop any advertising to save us money going to anybody who had a degree Oh no! Sorry, didn't have a degree. Yeah, like Piers Morgan, and like and watch Top Gear. Exactly the sort of people we should have been trying to win over. So we were polarizing, and so what the podcast does, we have this motto: try to agree, to, try to disagree agreeably. And I think it is trying to. From my, I think Rory was always that style of debate and, and discussion, whereas I wasn't, and I think I have sort of acknowledged that. How I've done politics for most of my life was very effective in terms of campaigning. But where we are now, I think we do need a different sort of debate. And I think and, and I think the success of the podcast is partly a rejection of the way politics is done and a, and a rejection of the way the media covers politics. I mean, it is extraordinary. Honestly, it's just you wouldn't believe it walking around the place, how ridiculous it is on the tube this morning two people in the carriage showing me that they were listening to the podcast on the train. It's weird. but And both quite young. Twenties, maybe early thirties. And lots of them saying it's the only thing they listen to. Now, I, I don't know what it's about. I really don't. I find it very baffling. But I think it's about that. I think it's about people rejecting both politics and media. And I'm sort of seen as not quite politics, not quite media, a bit of both. Rory's seen as not quite politics, was in politics, didn't, you know, he's out of it and he's doing it differently. And so, I don't know, but it's interesting. And I think this whole podcast thing is about people wanting something a bit more civilised and
0: a bit deeper. Tell me about the two Iraq specials you did, because the tone of those felt to me slightly different from a lot of the other programmes you've done. And Rory had come very well prepared with his line. It was sort of like a cross-examination. Were you expecting that? Had you had you prepared for that? Did he warn you that he was to... scared?
1: <laughs> no, really, no. What did what, you mind? Did I mind? Mm. No, I didn't mind. Look, it was, we were coming up to the twentieth anniversary. There were lots of programmes being made, lots of debates on the radio and the television. I was getting asked to do lots of stuff. I didn't particularly want to. I've talked about it thousands and thousands of times. I think the particularly the Iraq inquiry and the Hutton inquiry were two of the most gruelling inquisitions I've ever endured but it, it's been interesting ever since we started the podcast actually whenever Iraq has come up Rory has always said I really want at some stage I really think we should just do a one-off that's just about Iraq and we ended up doing two hours and doing them as two podcasts that, that we didn't expect it we didn't, as it were plan to do that so I knew he wanted to do it did I prepare for it I did a bit I did a bit but you know, I, I kind of know the detail pretty well. I, f- I felt I, I actually enjoy. It. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy it. But I was. But I felt. I felt sort of exhausted at the end of it. And I felt. I did feel.
0: I don't know What the word is really? I felt okay at the end of it. Well, it felt like an example of an illustration of what the podcast was about. So you were able. I mean, they, they were. It seemed you were coming from different positions. He asked you some very. Searching tough questions, but it was done in a civilized way. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: We talked. We, we've interviewed when we were in Belfast. We did lots of interviews for this new channel we've got leading. We did. We spoke to Jonathan Powell, Tony Blair's chief of staff, who was. And it's interesting because Rory actually does slightly lose his call cool at one point. He gets very angry with Jonathan, who's just defending, still defending the, the policy and the position at the time. And, and so that was that was interesting. I think with me. He Yeah, he he felt it. I think he felt his job in that was different to his usual role in the podcast where we just sort of, we ask each other questions, we bat things out, bat things about, we change the subject when we feel like it. it's quite fluid, whereas that was very, it felt to me like he was just, you know, he had his kind of arguments and his lines and his questions and he was just going to go through them methodically and I kind of went along with it.
0: Talking of podcasts, <coughs> you recently did one with Jon Snow mm-hmm. And John Snow, at one point, asked you whether there were any circumstances in which you could imagine helping out Labour in the next campaign, and there was <laughs> an immensely long pause. I've, I've never seen you so lost for words. Um, it suggested to me that this is a thought that has crossed your mind.
1: Yeah, it's sort of a, it's a difficult one because I look, I, I, I as it happens. I saw a get last night um, socially. And I I think it's like, when does this thing, if I, you know, I see Pat McFadden a lot. I spoke the other day to Peter Kyle. I saw Rachel Reeves recently. The
0: old band getting together. Well, it's
1: not really, because I'm not sort of sitting there saying, I don't see it as kind of advising. I see it as, you know, them picking my brains and me maybe picking their brains a bit. for. No, but there was a definite pause
0: about whether you would get involved actually in a more formal sense? I don't think I will. I don't think I will. I mean, you're not even a Labour Party member at the moment, are you? No, no. Well, they treat me like I still am, but I'm not, no. <laughs> Just remind us what, what you, you, I got, voted, you got I, thrown I, I
1: committed the cardinal sin of voting Liberal Democrat in the European elections, and I did it very explicitly. As a way of saying I was not happy with Labour's then position on Brexit, which, by the way, subsequently changed the position that I'd been advocating. But anyway, so I got, I think it's a five-year ban. It's been intimated to me that I'd be very welcome back.
0: Do you have to apply?
1: I'd have to apply, yeah.
0: And and is is, is it
1: pride holding you back? No, 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 no. No, I'm actually just, I don't think, to me, you know, I'm very, very Labour. I'm, you know, as Rory keeps telling me, I'm very tribally Labour. And I really want Keir to win. Look, I think the reason I paused when Jon Snow asked me that question is because I don't think it will happen, and I'm not—I'm certainly not asking for it to happen. But I genuinely—I don't know what I would do in those circumstances. I'm going to take that as a yes. No, no. I I think because it's a tough one because it's like when Gordon Brown asked me to go back, and I said no, and I said no, and I said no, and I said no. He wore me down, and eventually I said yes. I dunno, I don't know. Is and also I address the fact in the book that you're writing a book, what can I do? Get involved, I would say to everybody. And yet there's me holding back to some extent or getting involved in different ways. I really I really want I long for the day. I absolutely honestly long for the day when big stuff happens in the news that is say about strategy and communications that I'm meant to know about. And the BBC and Sky and ITV do not foam me up because there's a new generation of people who are doing that. I really long for that. I honestly long for that. I still worry the extent to which Labour's politics is very, you know, large, still very defined by figures of essentially of the past. You know, Tony Gordon, me, etc. Peter. You know, I think I think the new generation's got to do it.
0: Final question about Malcolm Tucker. <laughs> <laughs> <Mein helpt. laughs> have you have all. Mine helped. Have you have you watched all of them, or none of them, or some of them? Oh, most of them, but, definitely. Yeah. And, and yeah. do you find them funny? Very. And is Malcolm Tucker, Alistair Campbell, to a hundred percent, two hundred percent, five hundred percent? How much of a? Oh, less than a hundred percent.
1: In the in the. Oh, okay. Oh, I no, see I mean, mean it's an amplified version. <coughs> oh, I see. I see. Um, I've definitely got some of those characteristics: control freak, uh, wanted to wanted to dominate, keep the agenda on our terms, wanted the politicians to conform to an overall strategy. Um, slightly tricky relationship sometimes with the the those members of the establishment who wear pinky rings and went to the wrong schools, in my eyes. <laughs> I think my favourite my favourite scene of any Malcolm Tucker was when he was I think he was went about the Foreign Office and there was a permanent secretary or somebody in his office, in his Swish office with all this sort of art and his this and that and listening to some sort of really heavy classical music. And Malcolm just said, you know, shall I write public school twat on a post-it and stick it <laughs> on your forehead? <laughs> so Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, Malcolm Tucker. When he became Doctor Who, I, was, I, I felt that was bad for my brand because Doctor Who's an even bigger brand. Did, he, did Peter Capaldi
0: come and meet you before he played you, no, as it were?
1: No, Well, Armando Iannucci is insistent that it was not based on... Of course not. <laughs>
0: he did. But by the way, Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi played me as well. Did he? We have, we have that in common. In? In the, in the WikiLeaks film. Right. Um, and he never came to see me. I, was, I felt sore about Would you have seen him? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. No, But I, 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 I said, why did you never come and see me? And he said, I just watched you on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've had
1: about... A magazine did a football team of actors who played me in different things. One of whom was Ian Duncan Smith's son, who played me in a play somewhere. Seems most improbable. <laughs> but it's true.
0: So, yeah, oh, well. Well, Alistair, thank you for coming in. No. The book is called But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It. It's it's published by... Penguin Random House. It costs... Oh, it's quite a lot. It costs £22, but worth every penny. Yeah, but also
1: you can get it cheaper than that. you just got to look around.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, then grab a copy of the latest issue of Prospect magazine, which includes writing from Matt Dancona, a brilliant piece about Fox News. From Stuart Jeffries on the extraordinary story about how 15-minute cities have become the latest target for conspiracy theorists. And a gripping debate between Nick McPherson, who used to be in the Treasury, and Anne Pettifer, who didn't, on whether austerity was necessary. And while you're here, why not subscribe to something slightly different? Prospect Lives is a monthly series of audio diary entries from our family of seven writers, who include Sheila Hancock, Alice Goodman, and the former England cricket captain Mike Braley. It's completely different from this. It's a mix of completely different experiences which give you a snapshot of the lives of people who probably live differently to you. So search Prospect Lives wherever you get your podcasts or click on the link in the show notes of this episode.